This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple-choice questions related to statistical definitions, which is a big topic that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. The first question reads, In a diagnostic test, the proportion of individuals who are truly free of a designated disorder identified by the test is known as, and the choices are 1, specificity, 2, sensitivity, 3, accuracy, 4, positive predictive value, and 5, negative predictive value. So specificity refers to the proportion of individuals who are truly free of the designated disorder who are so identified by the test. So the correct answer to this question is 1, specificity. Sensitivity refers to the proportion of individuals who truly have the disorder who are so identified by the test. Positive predictive value refers to the proportion of individuals with a positive test who have the disorder. Negative predictive value refers to the proportion of individuals with a negative test who are free of the disorder. Accuracy is the overall ability to identify patients with the disorder, true positives, and without the disorder, true negatives, in the study population. Moving on to the next question. What term in statistics defines rejecting the null hypothesis when it is in fact true? And the choices are 1. Type 1 error, 2. Type 2 error, 3. Confounding error, 4. Variance, and 5. Negative likelihood ratio. So rejecting the null hypothesis when it is true is an example of a type 1 error. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Type 1 error. Type 1 errors, to put it simply, detect an effect that is not present. In contrast, a type 2 error fails to detect an effect that is present. In simple studies, the rate of a type 1 error is denoted by alpha. For a 95% confidence interval, the value of alpha is 0.05. This means that there is a 5% probability that we will reject a true null hypothesis. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2 is incorrect as a type 2 error accepts the null hypothesis when it should be rejected. Answer 3 is incorrect, as a confounder is a variable that has associations with both the dependent and independent variables, potentially distorting their relationship. Confounders are not technically considered, quote, errors, but instead are variables that properly constructed studies attempt to avoid. Answer 4 is incorrect, as variance is an estimate of the variability of each individual data point from the mean. And answer 5 is incorrect, as negative likelihood ratio describes how the likelihood of a disease is changed by a negative test result. Moving on to the next question. Outcome measures should have established psychometric properties of reliability, validity, and responsiveness. Reliability refers to which of the following? And the choices are 1. The amount of change in the score over time. 2. Sensitivity of the measure in evaluating a problem. 3. The ability of the instruments to actually measure what it intends to measure. 4. The measure of change over the course of treatment. And 5. The reproducibility of the measurements either between repeated tests or between observers. So the recent JBJS article by Coker and Associates defines the different psychometric properties that are used in outcome measures. Reliability is a measure of how reproducible a test is. This can be inter-observer reliability, i.e. the reliability between people, or intra-observer reliability, i.e. the reliability for the same person doing the outcome measure at different occasions. So the correct answer to this question is 5, the reproducibility of the measurements either between repeated tests or between observers. 
Moving on to the next question. A funnel plot is used in meta-analyses to perform which of the following functions? And the choices are 1. Illustrate the relative strength of treatment effects in multiple studies. 2. Detect publication bias. 3. Graph of the sensitivity versus 1 minus specificity of a diagnostic test. 4. Determine the sample size required to detect an effect of a given size with a given degree of confidence. And 5. Predict the unknown value of a variable from the known value of two or more variables. So a funnel plot is the most commonly used statistical test for detection of publication bias in meta-analyses. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Detect publication bias. Publication bias occurs because studies with a non-significant result, so-called negative studies, have a higher likelihood of being rejected than positive studies, and are oftentimes not even submitted for publication. Funnel plots, which plot the effect size of a study against a measure of the study's size, are used to detect this bias. This method is based on the fact that larger studies have smaller variability, whereas small studies, which are more numerous, have larger variability. Thus, the plot of a sample of studies without publication bias will produce a symmetrical, inverted, funnel-shaped scatter, whereas a biased sample will result in a skewed plot. Moving on to the next question. When planning a research study, the power of the study may be increased by, and the choices are 1. Performing a retrospective study, 2. Performing a prospective study, 3. Using a case control design, 4. Decreasing the sample size, and 5. Increasing the sample size. So the power of a study refers to the researcher's ability to detect a true association when one exists. Power is defined as 1 minus the beta error, with the beta error being the probability of concluding an association does not exist when one actually does. This is also known as the type 2 error. Increasing the sample size will increase the power of a study. So the correct answer to this question is 5, increasing the sample size. A power analysis can be performed for both retrospective and prospective studies and is independent of the sample population used. Moving on to the next question. A research study is initiated on 500 patients undergoing total hip arthroplasty. The patients are followed and outcome is assessed according to the body mass index, or BMI. The effects of BMI on outcome should be reported as which of the following. And the choices are 1. Odds ratio, 2. Incidence rates, 3. Prevalence rates, 4. Relative risk, and 5. Confidence intervals. So the study describes an example of a cohort study. Cohort studies follow a group of individuals over time and are optimal for studying the incidence, course, and risk factors of a disease. The effects in a cohort study are frequently reported in terms of relative risk. Odds ratios are used to report effects in a case control study. Incidence and prevalence rates are descriptors of a given characteristic either developed over time, that is the incidence, or at one given time, that is the prevalence. Confidence intervals are used to convey the significance of findings and are often used in lieu or in conjunction with p-values. So the correct answer to this question is 4, relative risk. Moving on to the next question. A research study developed a computer finite element model to predict and compare the fixation strength of two different methods of repairing a proximal tibial fracture. To, quote, validate the computer model, the investigators compared its output to the results of a benchtop model of the fixation using cadaver tibias. 
The investigators then calculated the degree of correlation between the fracture motion data from the two models and obtained a correlation coefficient R2 equals 0.97 and a level of statistical significance of P equals 0.03. What is the appropriate conclusion from this correlation analysis? And the choices are 1. Since P equals 0.03, the results are statistically significant, so the benchtop model validated the computer model. 2. Since R2 equals 0.97, the benchtop model validated the computer model. 3. Since R2 equals 0.97 and P equals 0.03, the findings are statistically significant and both methods are validated. 4. Since R2 equals 0.97 and P equals 0.03, the methods are strongly correlated with a high degree of certainty that the correlation is not due to chance alone. However, this alone does not validate the computer model. And 5. Since P equals 0.03, there is a 97% chance that the methods have the same accuracy. So a common mistake in the biomedical literature is to interpret the correlation coefficient as indicating the accuracy or validity of one measurement compared to another. In fact, correlation analysis is not the most appropriate type of analysis for this example. A correlation coefficient of 0.97 indicates that 97% of variation in the data from the benchtop test corresponds to variation in the computer model. However, two models can be nearly perfectly correlated, but both sets of data may be highly inaccurate. That is, the correlation coefficient indicates only whether two quantities tend to increase and decrease together, but it does not establish that they are accurate. Suppose, for example, that an experimental quantity is measured using two methods, giving 2, 3, 4, 5 for the first method and 4, 6, 8, 10 for the second. In this case, the two sets of data are perfectly correlated. R2 equals 1 and P equals 0.00. However, it is clear that at least one and possibly both methods are inaccurate. A particular measurement method is said to be highly repeatable and precise if it provides the same value each time it is performed with little variation. However, it still might be highly inaccurate. For example, a high-quality bathroom scale that has not been, quote, zeroed will give precisely the same inaccurate weight for many measurements. In general, statistical analyses cannot determine the accuracy of a particular experimental method. This must be done by comparing the data obtained using this method to the data obtained using an independent method for which the accuracy is known. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Since R2 equals 0.97 and P equals 0.03, the methods are strongly correlated with a high degree of certainty that the correlation is not due to chance alone. However, this alone does not validate the computer model. Moving on to the next question. When the data are normally distributed, what statistical test is best used to compare means of three or more independent groups? And the choices are 1, a Kaplan-Meier analysis, 2, analysis of variance, 3, a chi-squared test, 4, a meta-analysis, and 5, a log-rank test. So analysis of variance, or an ANOVA, is used to compare means of three or more independent groups with continuous variables that are normally distributed, for example, age, weight, height, etc. A Kaplan-Meier analysis is used to analyze survivorship of subjects or products in an outcome study. Chi-squared test is used to compare proportions for categorical variables. Meta-analysis is a systematic review method to analyze combined results of several independent studies, usually randomized clinical trials. A log-rank test is a statistical test to compare survivorship.
So the correct answer to this question is two. Analysis of variance is the best statistical test to compare means of three or more independent groups. Moving on to the next question. A study to determine the relationship between the symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome and occupational repetitive trauma is initiated and performed over five years following 500 workers at a local factory. Questionnaires identified 100 workers with symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome at the outset of the study. At the five-year conclusion, 100 previously asymptomatic workers reported the onset of carpal tunnel syndrome symptoms during the study period. What is the incidence of carpal tunnel syndrome symptoms in this five-year study? And the choices are 1, 10%, 2, 20%, 3, 25%, 4, 40%, and 5, insufficient information to calculate. So incidence is a measure of the risk of developing some new condition within a specified period of time. In this example, it is the number of new patients developing carpal tunnel symptoms, that is 100 workers, divided by the number of at-risk individuals, that is 400 workers, for an incidence of 25%, making 3, 25% the correct answer to this question. In contrast, prevalence is a measure of the total number of cases of disease in a given population. At the conclusion of five years, the prevalence of carpal tunnel symptoms in this group of 500 workers is 40%, or 200 workers. Moving on to the next question. In a hypothetical study, an investigator uses pedometers to determine that 20 women in his activity study averaged 2.1 million steps per year, whereas the 20 men averaged 1.8 million. The p-value for this difference was 0.09. Which of the following is a correct interpretation of the outcome of this study? And the choices are 1. Since p is greater than 0.05, the activity levels of women and men are statistically equal. Two, if in the general population there is no difference between the average activity levels of women and men, the difference observed between the women and men in this study would occur by chance selection in nine out of a hundred times that the study was performed. Three, the sample size was too small for this study, so the p-value has no meaning. Four, though a difference was measured between the two groups, the findings are not clinically significant since the p-value is greater than 0.05. And five, there is a 9% difference between the two groups because p equals 0.09. So the p-value should be interpreted only as an indication of the level of uncertainty of the results observed in this study. That is, the p-value answers the specific question, if, in general, there actually is no difference between the average activity levels of women and men, how often would one expect to obtain by chance a difference as large or larger than was observed in the present study? If the p-value is very small, it is relatively unlikely that the observed difference occurred by chance. However, it is critical to realize that because of its definition, a large p-value is not an indication that there probably is no difference in general. Therefore, it is not true that the study has shown that there is, quote, statistically no difference between the activity levels of women and men. Rather, a large p-value indicates a relative lack of certainty of whether difference between the activity levels of women and men in general is much smaller or much larger than was observed in the present study. Furthermore, no matter how large the p-value, in the absence of other data, such as other studies, the difference observed between the two randomly selected groups of subjects is the most reliable estimate of the magnitude of the actual difference between the full populations. In a study such as this, if the p-value is sufficiently small, the investigators may be relatively confident in concluding that the observed difference holds in general. 
In contrast, if the p-value is very large, say 0.8, then the investigators are relatively uncertain about any conclusion. That is, they are not highly certain that there is no difference in general. Put simply, contrary to the common misconception, observed differences are not shown to be real or false depending on whether the p-value is less than or greater than 0.05 or any other arbitrary value. So the correct answer to this question is 2. If in the general population there is no difference between the average activity levels of women and men, the difference observed between the women and men in this study would occur by chance selection in 9 out of 100 times that the study was performed. Moving on to the next question. Randomized controlled trials can be designed in several ways. Which of the following study designs refers to a randomized controlled trial in which two interventions are compared within the same study group? And the choices are 1. Parallel, 2. Case control, 3. Case series, 4. Factorial, and 5. Crossover. So a factorial randomized controlled trial design is more easily represented in a 2 by 2 table. Practically, patients are randomized to either treatment A and B, treatment A or control, treatment B or control, or no treatment. The strength of this trial design is that two interventions can be assessed with the same study population. Also, any interaction between the treatments can be determined. For example, does treatment A work differently when combined with treatment B? The parallel design trial is the simplest and most classic design for a randomized control trial. In this trial design, participants are randomized to two or more groups of different treatments and each group is exposed to a different intervention and only that intervention. In the crossover design trial, both groups receive both interventions over a randomly allocated time period. Group A can receive the treatment and after a suitable washout period can receive the placebo. Group B can receive the placebo and later can receive the treatment. This produces within-participant comparisons. The crossover trial design has a limited role in surgical interventions because it is difficult or impossible for patients to receive both treatment interventions such as plate and nail fixation or a cemented versus a cementless total hip arthroplasty. Case control and case series are not randomized trials but observational studies. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Factorial study designs refer to a randomized controlled trial in which two interventions are compared within the same study group. Moving on to the next question. You design a research study in which you ask patients who have a non-union of the tibia to fill out a questionnaire in which they report on a variety of medical conditions and social-slash-behavioral practices. You compare these findings to a similar group who did not develop a non-union in order to identify medical and or social conditions that may be risk factors for the development of tibial non-unions. This would be an example of what type of study. And the choices are 1. Case series. 2. Meta-analysis, 3. Case control study, 4. Retrospective cohort study, and 5. Prospective cohort study. So a case control series starts with the occurrence of a specific disease or observation and then compares data on those individuals to a similar group without the disease, that is the control group, in order to identify potential risk factors for the development of the disorder. A case series is an observational study in which an investigator follows a series of patients who received a specific treatment, recording the results and outcomes of that treatment. A meta-analysis is the combination of several separate studies that look at similar hypotheses in an effort to create a larger patient population for analysis. 
a cohort study looks for the incidence of a specific outcome in two groups, that is cohorts, of patients who are similar with the exception of a particular research variable, that is the risk factor. So the correct answer to this question is three, case control study. Moving on to the next question. Results of a study demonstrating no difference between treatments when a difference truly exists is an example of which of the following. And the choices are one, statistical insignificance, two, type one error, three, type two error, four, fragile p-values, and five, negative predictive value. So a type two error, also known as a beta error, occurs when results demonstrate that two groups are similar when in reality they are different with regard to the statistic being measured. Type 1 errors show that a difference exists when, in reality, no difference exists. A statistically insignificant result may lead an investigator to conclude that no difference exists between the two groups. This may be correct and therefore not a type 2 error. The concept of a fragile p-value is that small sample sizes may result in wide variability of p-values with only one change in a data point for a given group. This singular change could be a chance occurrence, but it still can affect the statistical significance of the outcome analysis. Fragility of p-values is limited by increasing sample sizes. Negative predictive value is the proportion of patients with negative test results who are correctly diagnosed. So the correct answer to this question is 3, type 2 error. Moving on to the next question, you are studying a single continuous variable after administration of a defined treatment intervention. Your statistician informs you the data are not normally distributed. What is the best test to analyze the data? And the choices are 1. Analysis of variance, otherwise known as an ANOVA. 2. Regression analysis. 3. Student t-test. And 4. Mann-Whitney u-test. So the Mann-Whitney u-test is used when data are non-parametric, meaning either not normally distributed or variances are not equal among the groups. Both the student t-test and an ANOVA are used with parametric, normally distributed data. A regression analysis is a statistical model that allows for control of potentially confounding variables. It is used to assess the relationship between a dependent variable and usually multiple independent variables. But the correct answer to this question is for the Mann-Whitney u-test. And the final question for this review session a researcher decides she wants to look at the current total number of patients who have methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus infections in a hospital on one particular day. What is the researcher measuring? And the choices are 1. Correlation coefficient of MRSA, 2. Prevalence of MRSA, 3. Incidence of MRSA, and 4. Relative risk of MRSA. So the prevalence of a disease is a measure of the number of cases of a disease at or during a specific time point or time period. In this case, the researcher wants to know the prevalence of disease on a given day. Incidence measures new cases of a disease or event per unit of time. Correlation coefficient is a measure of how two things correlate with one another. While relative risk is a statistical outcome that is often used in case control or cohort studies to provide a measure of the risk of a particular disease occurring when a certain exposure has already occurred. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Prevalence of MRSA. That's all for this question review session about statistical definitions. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes.
It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.